0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast, created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.
1: You're on 3CR, and welcome to Listening Notes, stories about politics, art and activism, and conversations about the big issues affecting our lives. Big thanks to Black Noise Radio for their show today. I'm Judith Peppard. And I begin by acknowledging that 3CR is broadcasting from the land of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nations, true owners, custodians and caretakers of this land, and I pay my respects to elders, past, present and emerging, and recognise that sovereignty has not been ceded. Today we're going to hear from Katrina Channels, a documentary filmmaker whose childhood friendship led her to make a film on the campaign to prevent fracking on the coasts of Meningrida in Arnhem Land.
0: After that phone call she went away and created Protect Arnhem Land which is a community grassroots campaign to stop unconventional mining in Arnhem Land. I went away and started working out how we could make a documentary about it.
1: Katrina channels, and she'll tell us more later in the show. But first up, we're going to take a look at sustainable futures. Peter Newman is a professor of sustainability at Curtin University, and he's a founding member of the Curtin University Sustainability Policy Institute. He's also the coordinating lead author for Transport with the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. I caught up with Peter because I was interested in an article he'd written entitled Creative Destruction The COVID 19 Economic Crisis is Accelerating the Demise of Fossil Fuels. The term creative destruction comes from the Austrian economist Joseph Schumpeter, who described the phenomena in 1942 a phenomenon in which technologies and processes continually revolutionise the economic structure from within. So I began by asking Peter Newman
2: to say more about that. The creative destruction of the old allows the new to accelerate. Investors come in who can replace the old. The opportunity is there and that's now happening. So you're seeing massive investment in solar and wind, in batteries and electric vehicles. And they're the big innovations, along with a kind of smart city integration, how you bring these things together with new smart systems. That forms a cluster. That was the other thing that uh, Schumpeter called them, a cluster of innovations. They all fit together. If you can demonstrate them quickly, you can rapidly take off in this new economy. And Australia's sitting pretty, ready to do that. Can you tell me more about electromobility? Electromobility fed with solar energy and wind energy rather than fossil fuel energy is where lithium-ion batteries are being put into vehicles of all shapes and sizes. Electric skateboards, electric scooters, electric bikes. These are just remarkable devices that are so much better. And they feed into good public transport. So electric buses and now electric trackless trams are where the equivalent of light rail can now be provided in a very smart technology. It can carry 300 people. It goes down the main roads and you can feed into the station precincts. They can be recharged there and the electric system can operate down a whole corridor. You can get urban regeneration around the station precincts that can help rebuild and provide opportunities for more people to live and work along that corridor. That seems to me to be a pretty good deal for electromobility and making our cities function very much better.
1: Yes, and you also talk about smart city technology. So what are we talking about? I mean, I have to confess that when I think of smart city technology, I think of facial recognition, which is kind of a a dark side of things. Are there more positive aspects of it?
2: A lot of the, the publicity about smart cities has been negative, and I don't particularly like the fact that it's a great big company war going on as to who's the smartest, Cisco or IBM, they're all providing a range of systems, one of which is a surveillance type technology. They are being used by police and has to be controlled, very seriously controlled. The better side to it is when the sensors can be used to help provide information to you, whether you're on a bike, wanting a bus or a train or a tram, and you need the information about how to get there, where to park your bike, where to recharge it, how to get the tram on time. All of this information can easily be provided now because the sensors are telling you where everything is You can get an app that will tell you all this and enable you to quickly plan your route.
1: To some extent, we have that already with our mobile phones, maps and use. So it's not that far away.
2: No, it's not that far away. It just needs to be more integrated. The next thing is how similar information can be used to manage the buildings so that they have very much less energy use and water use. There's going to be one called Climate Clever, an app on a phone, and you can put into it the information about your own power bills and gas bills and water and, and travel and get all kinds of information that helps you to reduce that. It uses artificial intelligence or, or machine language, as it's called. It groups together the people in certain areas and finds out the best ideas in that area that relates to the type of buildings and the type of climate.
1: Does this help people to build more efficient
2: buildings? How to live better in, in those buildings. It's smart and it's enabling us. We've now been working on a project called WGV. It's 100 units of development covered in solar and it's shared because it's medium density. You share the roof and you share the stairwells and so on. Well, you now share the solar. The way to manage that without one person taking it all is through blockchain. And blockchain is another smart technology that enables these choices to be made. And that's proven. It's been published and now being extended into the next set of developments, much bigger ones, up to 10,000 units now being built. That will enable us to have shared solar, not just for the rich or even the middle class. We now know how it works. I couldn't have said that five years ago, but we do. We don't have to invent anything.
1: So all of these new technologies, how much carbon will they save?
2: My estimate is that we could save 80% of the carbon we use if we got and did fully the solar batteries, electric vehicles and smart technologies in our cities. And there can be small towns and even remote settlements and indigenous settlements and so on. They can all be done with that technology and that would be about 80%. The other 20% is about industry and agriculture, and there's a lot can happen using hydrogen. Hydrogen, however, is not yet really ready. There's a lot of invention still to be done. There's some things that are ready to go, but they're too expensive and too difficult to transport and to make it cost effectively. The kind of thing that Ross Garnaud has put in his book, Superpower, is not about using hydrogen in the city as much as... Using it in the countryside where we have wonderful resources, space, and we've got solar and we've got minerals. Where these three things come together, we should be using the space to make solar energy, and that solar is then used to break down uh, water into hydrogen and oxygen. The hydrogen is then used directly as a reducing agent and an energy source to process those minerals. We should be able to do that cheaper than anywhere else in the world. So instead of just digging up and shipping out, which we're very clever at, but it's not a very clever thing to do because it's only 1% of the value of that product, we should be able to process and produce the raw materials into highly refined materials, and perhaps even then making batteries and making other things like steel and aluminium. There's no reason why we can't do that. And we should be getting demonstration projects that begin that process. Peter Newman from
1: the Curtin University Sustainability Policy Institute. And as he envisages a future based on renewables, both from his international perspective, his vantage point as the coordinating lead author for transport with the IPCC, and locally. I wondered what he thought about the federal government's gas-led COVID recovery plan.
2: If that gets anywhere, it's going to be a diversion from the kind of future that we need. Now, the finance industry are telling them that. They don't want to invest in gas. The big companies are looking and seeing the Asian market very rapidly moving towards a decarbonised kind of gas. They are looking for hydrogen. It must be made from a green source. It can't be made out of natural gas. There's a market for that now. So we need to get on with that kind of gas. If that's the gas-led recovery they're talking about, that's fine. But it's not. They're just trying to get fracking and big gas projects that have been sitting there unable to get finance because they're very unviable, sitting on the edge of collapsing, and they're trying to give them a boost because that's the big boys that they know. They ought to see that that world is dying very rapidly. If they push that investment, that will be wasted. It will be stranded. Many of these gas developments are gonna go bankrupt. They are not going to be able to proceed even with the kind of expansion that's built into projects they've got now. There's three or four times as much gas they're talking about producing. The world does not need that. They're gonna say, Australia, get a life. Go and get some green hydrogen and we'll buy that. But we're not gonna buy your contaminated, polluted gas. It's not what we need.
1: The other part of that, of course, is the destruction of the environment that that entails. Fracking has had disastrous effects. And and on water, water is a scarce commodity in Australia.
2: Yes, I think the more of these panels of assessment that are now reporting, the more they're going to see that, and it's just not appropriate any longer. The world has changed, and they need to see that this is a historical opportunity This doesn't come around more than once in a generation. The 1930s generation have gone. It's now our turn to create this new economy that is 100% net carbon free. Just a quick example of that. You know how hard it was to get the, the Tesla battery system going in South Australia? It's 150 megawatts. There was some doubt as to whether it would be cost effective. It's paid for itself in two years.
1: That's just incredible.
2: It is so much better. It can help with the fluctuations in the grid in a millisecond. But gas turbines take six seconds to ramp up. If you've got a system where you can easily, quickly get a much smoother power system going, it will move to that. So right through the grid, that 150 megawatts became number one and the gas turbines weren't needed. We do not need gas turbines for that peaking or fluctuating in the grid. We have a solution. And Tesla is now doing that with 300 megawatts in California. We don't need anything more from gas. We've got a better solution and it's cheaper. It pays for itself in two years. Come on. And then it's free. So that's the future, and it's unfolding very rapidly. In the last few months, the OECD countries have dropped their demand for electricity. Coal use has gone down 24%, and renewables has increased 22%. It's switching over very, very quickly. If you've got renewables in your system... Like those batteries, they are better because they don't have a cost of the fuel. The sun and the wind are free. So you've paid for them already in terms of the infrastructure and their systems, but the marginal cost, the fuel, is nothing. Whereas coal or gas costs something. So the whole system moves automatically. The dramatic acceleration is happening. We need to cash in on that. If we start pushing gas They don't need it. They know what works now. And it's solar, electric vehicles, and batteries combined.
1: Peter Newman, Professor of Sustainability at Curtin University. And what a great thing to be a professor of. So relevant right now. And Peter was founding director of the Curtin University Sustainability Policy Institute. I'm going to check out his book, Resilient Cities, Overcoming Fossil Fuel Dependence. Next up, I'll be speaking with documentary maker katrina channels
0: friends of the earth food co-op is open get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available Visit www.foefood.org slash to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter.
1: And you are on 3CR this Monday, August 24th. The show is Listening Notes. I'm Judith Peppard. Great to have you tuning in to us here at 3CR on this Monday afternoon, where winter seems to have returned, but not for long. It's going to warm up at the end of the week. I have that on reasonably good authority. My next guest is Katrina Channels, and you may have heard about her already because her film, Leaving Ellen Street was shown at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival just a few weeks ago. Today I'm speaking with Katrina about a different film, The Stingray Sisters, that's being shown this Friday, August the 28th, at a fundraiser for Sue Bolton's re-election campaign to Moreland Council. And just a warning to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening, I'll be speaking with my guest about a person who has passed away. Katrina Channels grew up in Brisbane, and that's where she met the Ether Sisters, Noni, Alice, and Grace. And it was their environmental activism and that of their mother, Helen Jimbullawalla Williams, that inspired the film The Stingray Sisters. I began by asking Katrina how she became involved in documentary making.
0: Both my parents are uh, activists, socialists. I had a big network and a big community. That's how I became so close to Alice Grace and Noni as we were kids because I had learnt as a kid about the history of First Nations people. Got a little bit of an outsider at primary school as well. I think we sort of found each other. In high school I just decided that that was what I wanted to do, make films, and I started out in documentary just because I was surrounded by so many interesting people and Alice and her sisters were my first foray, I guess, into filmmaking and into documentary. I first followed Noni Ether in a short documentary I made called Keeping Both Campfires Burning. In that we followed her journey back to Manangreta when she had a, her first child and it was the first time that, Helen Jimbalawella Williams, their grandmother, could meet Noni's daughter. I just sort of fell into it because I loved the stories of the people around me and I just thought those kind of stories weren't being told enough.
1: So you've already partly answered my next question, but it's what brought you to the documentary about the environmental activism in and Greta.
0: Alice was my best friend and I wasn't expecting to make Stingray Sisters but I received a call from Alice in 2013 and she was just beside herself in tears. She had run out into the bush and I had no idea what was going on. I was obviously very worried and it took her several minutes to tell me what had happened and she eventually said, you know, we've been given notice about seabed mining in Maningrida, in the community and um, offshore along the whole coastline of Arnhem Land and she was so distraught that that could happen to her community so I just knew that I had to help her in some way and after that phone call she went away and created Protect Arnhem Land which is a community grassroots campaign to stop unconventional mining in Arnhem Land. I went away and started working out how we could make a documentary about it, and that's how Stingray Sisters came about.
1: So you started it in 2013, and then it took another three years where you, I guess you followed the progress
0: of that campaign. I had no choice. I felt I just had to make this story and had to help her share her fight to save her mother's community. And I also wanted to show, because I knew the family well, the beautiful, strong, eclectic family that the Ethers are. That's a big part of the Stingray Sisters as well as the family dynamic. It's a story about stopping unconventional mining in NT, but also it's about family who work together and support each other. Yes, and I think the documentary is in three segments, is that right? Three episodes, but for the screening that we're holding on Friday the 28th, we've put the film together so it's a feature length. What's the focus of
1: each of the three sections?
0: The focus of the first episode is about their time in Brisbane and growing up in Brisbane about their father who is an artist and a gallery owner and they have a very strong family down in Brisbane as well and then we journey up to Managrita for the second episode and that's focused around their mum and her strength and her knowledge and her wisdom as a community leader and elder and traditional owner up in Maningrida, And the third episode really culminates in the campaign and the fight to prevent this company from destroying this world, this beautiful world that they exist in. The film has
1: been shown internationally.
0: What kind of response has it had? Beautiful response. People just absolutely fall in love with the sisters first and foremost and so then they are very happy to go on this journey with Alice as she faces Tower Petroleum in Sydney. Amazing response but obviously the film didn't reach its full capacity as we lost Alice about a year after the film was made.
1: That must have been really hard when you describe Alice as your best friend throughout primary school and then going into high school you obviously had a very strong connection that must have been hard
0: Very hard it was the hardest thing that I've had to deal with in my life but um it's it's important that we talk about it and we acknowledge yeah that her work was was important and she achieved so much in a short, Lifetime, we need to acknowledge also the rates of suicide in Aboriginal communities and that's why the family and I have agreed that it's important that we keep sharing her story and that we continue her legacy, because not only was she an activist, she was an educator, she was the only Jepena speaking teacher in Managrida ever, the first one. She was dedicated to the kids that she taught, and she was a poet and achieved a lot in her lifetime. It's important that we continue that.
1: Yes, and I've read that the family, is they've written a lot, written and spoken a lot about her life, and uh, they've wanted to keep her poetry alive as well, so you can hear her poetry on the internet, which is incredibly beautiful. The story is universal for Indigenous peoples fighting for their land rights. I mean, this must speak to everyone who's doing that and speaking, you know, against destruction of environment
0: we're all sick of it it's really drawn a line in the sand now this pandemic is a perfect example that we just can't keep taking and raping the land we need to find new ways and they're there. We have the technology, we can move to renewables. That's what Alice wanted for her community is alternatives to fracking, alternatives to mining. They're possible. It's just that we have to change our minds about coal and fossil fuels. First Nations are the leaders in a lot of these fights and it does take its toll. So we need to get behind them. We can build a better future.
1: Katrina Channels talking about her documentary film, The Stingray Sisters. It'll be on this Friday evening at 6.30 Eastern Standard Time, and you can book your ticket to get the Zoom link to the screening on trybooking.com, B-K-Y-I-J. And the screening is a fundraiser for Sue Bolton's campaign for re-election to Moreland Council in October. And a warning again to any Aboriginal people or Torres Strait Islander peoples who might be listening. We're now going to hear a poem that was written and performed by Alice Ether before she passed. And it's a reminder of who we are and what we need to fight for. My story is your story. <sighs>
3: People ask me for my story, but my story is your story. My feet are in the dirt, and the dirt it speaks in dust. And the trees they speak in leaves, like the people speak in trust. And the water speaks in waves, and the dust is in the wind. So the country covers my skin, and my skin covers this body. And this body has a vessel in this chest that carries messages from my ancestors what to do against a threat. And these messages come to me in dreams, and I've collected so many now, they're asking me to speak. People ask me for my story, but I thought my story was your story. When I see map of country, I see land, sea and family. When they see map of country, they see mining fantasies. When I see the seabed, I see sacred sites. When they see the seabed, they see dollar signs. When I see a map of exploration permit 266, I see them trying to reduce my country into three digits. When I see Iritya and a country, I see everything that is our moiety. When they see Iritya and Dua country, they see the future in the oil and gas industry. When I see the tides rise and fall, I can read the storms. When they see the tides rise and fall, they just want to find out what's under it all. It's funny how they want to dig so deep but act so shallow. So I say, Goma, Nika, no. So water people say, Goma, Nika, no. Wunal clan say, Goma, Nika, no. People ask me for my story, but my story is your story. When you cry, don't you cry the ocean? When you sweat, don't you sweat the ocean? When you drink, don't you drink the rivers and the rain? And when you wash, don't you wash into the ocean so that cycle can start again? When we cry, we cry the ocean. When we sweat, we sweat the ocean. When we drink, we drink the rivers and the rain and we wash into that ocean. where the cycle starts again.
1: Alice Ether poet, teacher, and environmental warrior. With my story is your story. And we're coming up to the end of listening notes. Thank you to my guests, Peter Newman and Katrina Channels. Stay tuned to 3CR because Diaspora Blues is coming up next. Stay safe, and I'll catch you next week at two o'clock on 3CR.